There are people who think that, hey, the US dollar is a fiat currency. It's not really backed by anything except for the good faith of the government. And will our government be around forever in perpetuity or will something happen? Will the dollar collapse? Will China become the new superpower? Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my great two best listeners. Today, I have the pleasure to speak to my good friend, Matt Piccini. Our paths have crossed a lot of times. And the similar circles, the similar kind of stuff, uh, but he's way more talented than I am. I actually just learned a few minutes ago that he was an actor on Broadway, on theater. So this is amazing. We'll, we'll jump into that story as a little bit as well. Matt, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course, man, of course. So Matt, tell oh. one thing that we always open the show with. We don't necessarily do a formal introduction because I think your story will speak for yourself, for itself. What does the term migrate to wealth mean to you when you hear that term, migrate to wealth? Well, I think it's it's about moving from, you know, when I think of wealth, it's, it's not necessarily like rich. It's not, I mean, obviously money, but I think there's more to wealth than just money, right? I think holistically health and just a, like a state of well-being and, and comfortability versus kind of like being more, you know, running after and trying to sort of like get that paycheck and, you know, almost like, not that a lot of people, I mean, there are a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck, <clears throat> but maybe not necessarily your audience moving into a place where you're not so concerned about money, about finances, where you, you've got a good understanding of it and you're holding on to it. So, so sort of moving from that kind of like trying to achieve to the comfortability and, yeah. and you know, stability. That's, that's what I think. So Matt, how are you doing on that journey for yourself? Where are you? Well, you know, I think we're doing well on that. I, I'm not in a place where being the way that I was raised, I'll never be in a, in a, in a place where money is no object to me and I'm just, you know, yeah. throwing cash into a, a fire pit or something like that. Yeah. You know, I come from a, you know, somewhat humble beginnings, you know, to, to give you an example. In high school, I went to a high school where there were some kids whose parents bought them, you know, like a, you know, brand new car. BMW or something like that. Like there were some kids like that. Uh, there were other kids who, you know, had to ride the bus, right? Yeah. Once I turned 16, uh, my parents did help me pay for a down payment on a Volkswagen Fox. If anyone knows what that I don't was. know where that kind of meant. Yeah. Yeah. I had a Volkswagen Fox. My folks did help me with the, with the down payment. I paid the majority of it. And then I had to work a job and make the car payments. And so, you know, I, I didn't, my, my parents didn't like buy me a car or anything, but I don't want to say like, I, I didn't grow up in abject poverty, poverty either, but I wasn't, you know, and I don't come from, from, from wealth, I would say, except I did have a wonderful family. And so from that perspective, I was very wealthy yeah. when it comes to that. But when it comes to dollars and cents, I didn't really come from that. At this point, you know, I, I live in a, you know, a nice place. Uh, I, I, I drive a car. I drive a Subaru Forester. I'm not driving around in a Lamborghini. <laughs> um, not but, you know, not got, yet. I've got a wife and two children. My wife loves her job. So even if she could leave her job, she never will because she loves it so much. But we're also not in a position where, you know, I'm checking the bank account every day. You know, oh. I mean, 
I have some good passive investments. You know, just just real quick for your listeners. You know, I I, I work in multifamily, and I have over ten thousand apartment units that I've invested in nationwide, uh, and two thirds of that portfolio are investments that I've made as a limited partner, right? As a passive investor with people who who I've gotten to know and like and trust, and hopefully they are able to operate the deals profitably. Uh, but then I have, you know, a third of that portfolio, a little over 4,500 units that I'm a general partner on, that I am managing those assets and I am day-to-day involved in the operations. So, so Matt, interestingly, you used the word hope in one of the, as you described the other syndicators that you invested along with. Let's jump on that for a second. And maybe you maybe you didn't mean to use that word, but I want to, because you used it, I'm going to ask, why did you use that term, hopeful? Well, I think that we as passive investors, right, can do as much due diligence as we want, but we won't really know what's going to happen until the thing has happened, right? Right. And when we're looking at the market, like today's market is very tough. So we may have, I may have invested in a deal with a very good operator and it may have been a very good, you know, market, meaning the location of the property and the business plan may have been very good, but they may be experiencing some stress right now. Right. So, you know, there are things that can be controlled. There are things that can be, you know, that you can foresee but there are conditions that are beyond our control and that are true, unforeseeable. True. So there is a degree of risk in any sort of investment. And so I'm always hopeful that the risk doesn't turn out to be, you know, a worst case scenario, I guess. Yeah, and no, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing, right? Because I think that's what that's really what I was hoping to get that that hope is not an investment strategy because you have to do your due diligence before you even put a cent into a deal, into an opportunity, especially that you're not intimately being familiar with because you're not running day to day. But I think what happens is even though the operator may be perfect in terms of their operations, their track record and their understanding, their business savviness, market leadership. All right. So the hope is always going to be there. There's always a risk. Just because you're 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 investing with somebody who is a good operator, quote unquote, and that could be a different thing that we can go deeper on that one as well, it does not mean a deal's gonna always work in your favor, especially the way it was planned. It may look entirely different or slightly different in the next three to five years before the exit. So you have to be also, you have to be cognizant of that as well, especially with the transition right now. Let's talk about that, Matt, uh, shifting. Actually, before we even do that, let's talk about your other talent. How did how did you crack into being in theater? Uh, tell us more of that and then we'll talk about the journey of you being an actor to you being uh, directing the real set view. Sure. Well, so I was always interested in in the arts and performing. Uh, I think my first performance was playing the role of Little Bird in kindergarten, where I ran across stage. My mom tells me flapping my arms, but I, you know, I, I imagine I, I don't really remember that. I do remember my fifth grade play and and doing that, and really just really like liking it and being something that I was passionate about. And I, you know from probably about fifth grade on, always wanted to to pursue a career in theater. So as a as a kid growing up, I was very involved in community theater and different programs and things of that nature. And I moved to New York City in 1992 to go to a musical theater conservatory called the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And so I graduated from there a couple of years later. And three days after graduation was actually off on the road doing a national tour of Aladdin, the show Aladdin. Oh, wow. 
I had, yeah, I had a, a fun time and an interesting career in the theater. Uh, I was a professional actor for about five years or so. What happened for me was the, the internet was becoming a thing, you know, talking like 96, 97. And I started not wanting to be doing a lot of like regional theater or tours or things of that nature. I was waiting for a Broadway show. I had several callbacks for Broadway shows and ended up actually starting my own boutique web development agency back in the, the dot-com heydays mm. until 2001 when the dot-com bubble burst. Yeah. And that's when I got a call from my landlord telling me that I had 90 days to get out of the apartment I was living in. So I went in-house at Showtime, the cable television channel. They were a client of mine. So I went in-house there and was looking for a place to rent, but I actually found a place that I could buy. I bought it. And a couple of years later, I sold it and more than quadrupled my initial investment in the property. And then I was like, okay. Why am I doing what I'm, why am I not doing this? Yeah, I mean, I was making good money at that time. This was this was you know 2002, 2003, and I was making six figures, which for me at that time, like that was good, good money. Yeah, but that one real estate transaction was more than a whole year's worth of salary, and I was like, okay, we need to figure this thing out. Uh, yeah. And so you know, but at that point, I had really decided that that I was having so much fun doing what I was doing, and I really hadn't been acting for a long time, and that I just yeah. I, I just kind of wasn't an actor anymore. It was never like a right. conscious decision of like, I'm not going to do this anymore, but it just kind of evolved. And now that I am doing real estate full time, I have also been able to work with my wife who actually works on the business side of Broadway. And we've actually co-produced a couple of musicals together. So that. we got a couple of Tony Awards for that, which is fun. So I'm still having like, thank you. So I still have, you know, like a finger in that. I'm, I'm still a big supporter of the arts. I think they're very important. And I'm glad that I can stay connected to that. But my my day work is all in real estate. In real estate. A soft spot for our theater. I like that. I like that. And thank you for sharing that story. So Matt, let's, let's move forward, man. As you reflect back on your journey of the first place you bought in 2002-ish time frame? Yes, I bought it in 2001. It was the very end of 2001. Perfect, perfect. perfect. And then to now owning or invested in over 10 units, right? As you reflect on that journey and as you look forward, let us, let's paint a picture for the audience here. How do you see the market changing? I mean, everyone knows about the interest rates. Everyone knows. But I don't think everyone understands the impact of, impact of interest rates, especially as an investor, especially as a real estate investor. So could we dump it down and kind of help us paint the picture of what this was before and what's, what could they have to look like? Yeah. So I have a book that I wrote called Backstage Guide to Real Estate. Inside the book, I share about my journey and I share 18 keystone concepts that I've learned along the way. And one of the earlier concepts, I think it was keystone concept number five, is cash flow is king. This is something that I learned early on. That first place that I bought that I had mentioned, I did very well, right? I was in a market that was that was definitely on its way up. And I bought in a location that was on its way up and we made improvements to the property. I mean, it was technically for those of uh, you, of your listeners who know what a value add is, right? It was a value add. I didn't know it was a value add. I knew that I could buy this place and I could pay the, the mortgage and that it made sense and that the unit itself needed a little bit of work, but the the building itself was ter- was in just want to say terrible shape it just looked really 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 right. dated and as a member of the uh, it was a co-op 
So as a member of the co-op, I was actually asked to be on a committee and we redid the lobbies and the hallways and the elevators. And so two years after I bought the place, it had been completely renovated, not only my unit, but the lobby and the hallways, and it looked a lot nicer. And that improved the the value, or at least the perceived value, right, for for people who were purchasing. And and I was able to to make some good money on it. That I used the profits from that sale of that property to purchase another place to live in. Now in a part of town. So what I what I didn't mention earlier is that that property that I bought was way, way, way uptown in an area called Washington Heights, which is a nice area, but it's very far away from midtown Manhattan where I worked and where I, you know, socialized. So I wanted to live actually on the Upper West Side. It was a lot more expensive, but with the profits from the sale of the first place, I was able to buy the second place, which I bought. I, 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 I bought it, but what happened was in 2007, 2008, those values went way, way, way down. Now, what my father had told, my dad told me this when I bought the place up in Washington Heights, and I heard him, but it didn't really ring true until 2008. He said, he said, Matt, you'll never lose money in real estate if you never have to sell. So as long as you can hold on to that property, right? And so that really hit true for me in 2008 because I had seen that. Luckily, I had bought my place a few years before that. So I, the value had gone up quite a bit. So when 2008 came and everybody's values went down, mine went down to right around what I had paid for it. I mean, no one really knows. I didn't have it on the market. Right. But from what I'm seeing in the market, it looked like it was going to be, if I had to sell it, I would have gotten about what I had paid for it. A lot of people were underwater where they had right. mortgages that were more than what the value of their property was. And that's happening today in the in the commercial real estate market, right? Not so much in, in, in residential homes, but- yeah multifamily in in industrial and self like all all over the commercial real estate especially in the office space. office is brutal space right now i realized back then i really want to have something that i can hold on to no matter what happens and so that's why i say cash flow is king because as long as you have a property that you're going into and it's producing positive cash flow the odds are and it depends how rough the market might get but the odds are that you're going to at least be able to hold on to your property right yeah. you have strong reserves you have strong cash flow so what i found is that if you have properties that have positive cash flow you can hold on to that property and weather a storm you know if, if things get a little bit rough maybe you can't give out those distributions that you were hoping to mm -hmm. from from cash flow but with with strong cash flow and with strong cash reserves you can sort of live through that. And that right. has run true throughout my whole real estate career. I think that's very true today. And I think it's been, when I look at all the deals that I've done, deals that I've done where there's been strong cash flow, where there's been strong reserves, those are deals that have done well. There are deals that did not have that and did well because the market was good. And then there's deals that have not done that and have, have not done well because the market was rough. So I think that cash flow really is king. But this this is actually a very very important one. Let's let's go deeper into that one a little. I think it's very 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 important because I'm sure listeners, either yourself or you have friends or family members or whoever, right, somewhere in your ecosystem, if you ask them a question, are you holding it for cash or are you holding appreciation? Of course, the right answer, appreciation for everyone. But is it? I think that's a question. Where, that's a question we're asking. When yes, you want the property to appreciate. Yes, you do. And on long term real. Will appreciate as compared to any other asset class, but the key here is long term, 
And the question, the point that Matt's talking about, his dad was talking about is, you you have to have the capability to be able to hold it, right? If you got a million dollar property, so I'm, I'm making making these numbers up, and you're, let's say, $1,000 negative in that property every single month. Today, it may seem $1,000 not much because your income and everything else works out, and you're like, $1,000 nothing, because you believe this property, a million dollars, become $10 million. And again, that's a hope. That's not, there's no guarantee. It could also become 1.5, or it could also go down. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But now you're taking a burden of $1,000 a month, right? Now, if you have a 10K surplus and a 1K gap, and you're savvy with your money and everything else, most people are not. Most people are living, I'm saying that we're going to save $2,000, mark our $1,000 negative, cover the cash flow, because we're hoping in 10, 15, 20 years, this property is going to get 10x the money. It could happen. I'm not saying it will happen. But what happens if you lose a job? What happens if you fall sick? What happens if one of you, if two partners are making money, one of them passes away, right? There could be a lot of what ifs, and hopefully you don't have to face any of that. But if you've covered that downside protection, then you're golden. And the only way that I know with the guarantees of that, with, with a lot of certainty of protecting is the property is producing cash to begin with, right? You're not, and now I, I could I could hear a lot of people, my friend talking in my head right now saying that, yeah, I'll just pay it all down and it's all cash. Well, then you have to start thinking about is, is the return of your money good? So it's not like a, not a one variable problem, it's a multivariant problem. And you have to be able to make sure where you want, what do you want to optimize for? You want to optimize for something that Matt's dad talked about. You'll make money in real estate if you don't have, right? And that have is that you're not forced. I'll use a different word. It's not have not because you don't want to. No, no, no. It's because you're forced to. And right now in this market, a lot of the industrial office buildings, a lot of multifamily, and some of some some of my friends I know who are being forced to sell their single families because they bought it for the hope that it's going to quadruple or 10x the money. And right now they can't afford it. So I think I want to make sure I replace the word have with you're being forced to sell it because you don't have the capability to sustain it because it's negative. So any thoughts on that, Matt? I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I, I lived in Boston for a little while and I wanted to buy property in Boston because I like Boston. I mean, I really love living there, but I couldn't find anything that was cash flowing. Everybody right. was buying properties and sort of hoping or speculating that the market would go up. And the Boston market is super, it's a great real estate market. Like it's super strong. There's so many diverse employment bases. There's yeah. so many reasons why I liked it and wanted to own real estate there, but ultimately it came down to the fact that, well, at the prices that they were being sold at the time that I was looking, I would be negative. I didn't take money out of my pocket. Or maybe if I was lucky, it would be break even. But then if things turned and the market softened and I needed a lower rent or something like that, I'd have to take money out of my pocket. And that was a scary thing to, to necessarily be in unless I had super deep pockets. Correct. And I didn't want to have all that liability on me. I actually wanted something that was generating at least modest cash flow and also not just hoping for the market to appreciate i know that overall when we look at the u.s market depending on you know what statistics you're looking at three to six percent average increase in real estate over the long term on an annual basis however there's no guarantee that that's going to continue right 
So yeah. I like to buy properties where we're able to force that appreciation through adding value, through doing things that are generate, making it so that property's generating more income. Yeah. I think that's really important too. So, so Matt, let's talk about that. So we talked about cash flow being the key. What other criteria and, and then how have they shifted? If you can talk a little bit more, a few more criteria. I have a certain criteria that I look for as a passive investor. And when I'm looking to do deals as a general partner, I want to make sure that my the investors in my deal are going to that it's going to meet that criteria as well. Right? I feel like that's, that's only fair. That's, my, that's fair. Shouldn't be yeah. worse than they, than what I'm willing to invest in. Hopefully better. So, hopefully better. Hopefully better. So I have seen that change though over time. You know, in in 2015, 2016, 2017. You know, I think a lot of properties were were projecting, and a lot of them were delivering on very high cash on cash returns. You know, anything from eight to twelve percent cash on cash return, and you know, people were doubling their money. You know, every three years. You know, now from what I'm seeing, both passively and 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 the deals that I'm doing, you know, we 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 still look to have strong cash on cash returns over the lifetime of a deal. But I, but when I'm saying strong, I'm still talking about like seven or eight percent. You know, not yeah. not double digits anymore. And often, you know, in the earlier years, and this rang true in the past too. That the, the cash flows may be a little bit lower in the earlier years and a little higher in the later years. But we're looking to double investors' money in about five to seven years now instead of like yeah. three to five. It's more like five to seven. So still, I think very strong returns. Yep. If you double your money in five years, that's 20% average annual return. And I believe the stock market's like around seven or eight yeah. percent generally. That long that's term. not even yeah. considering the tax benefits and everything else. This is just Correct. straight returns. Correct. Correct. And so it still is a very attractive investment. I think if people can can execute on that plan, right. I think it's I think it's a very attractive investment. No, I completely agree, Matt. I think I think that makes. Now let's talk about one thing that I keep hearing from my investors, right? my friends, that why invest deals where you're getting seven to eight percent because the risk is high, when I can get six percent at treasuries, five point something at treasuries. What are your thoughts on that? Of course, you're losing on the upside, right? Because treasuries. While you're making six, seven percent, five to seven percent, depending on maybe five-ish percent, you're not. There's no. You're not doubling, right? You just you're just comparing capital to interest rate, but you're not necessarily doing. Capital is not moving at faster velocity. So, what are your thoughts? How I don't know if you have been asked that question. How are you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, people have asked me about that, or or you know, if it's not the treasury, then it's you know stocks or things like that. I yeah. think in general. There's risk involved in any sort of investment. I think I mentioned that earlier. You know, treasuries sound, it sounds like, oh, it's the treasury. It's risk-free, but it's really not risk-free. I mean, we know the, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, like that whole debacle, they had invested in in a lot of treasuries and, and things of that nature that are supposed to be more stable. And they were stable, but when the interest rates in the entire market environment shifted, they 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 were sort of in a bad position. The other thing is like, I don't know, like I I tend to not be in this camp, but there is the, you know, anti sort of US dollar camp, right? There's mm -hmm. there are yeah. people who think that, you know, hey, the US dollar is, you know, a fiat currency. It's not really backed by anything except for the good faith of the government. And will our government be around forever in perpetuity, or will something happen? Will the dollar collapse? Sure. Will Will China become the new superpower, right? And I think there's a lot of 
visionaries out there and, and smart people like Ray Dalio who are pointing at signs that say, hey, it looks like maybe our, you know, maybe China is becoming sort of the the global superpower. And, you know, if something like that were to happen, what does that mean to the US dollar? What does that mean to the treasury, especially with our deficit, which keeps growing and growing? You have Congress who in in lot, many recent years does not come up with a balanced budget, right? Yeah. So like US bonds and things of the the the, the rating of them have have gone down, right. you know. So I there, there's there's risk is all my point. I'm not I'm not saying that any of that is happening. I'm just saying there's there's risk involved in anything. So if you can invest in real estate and get sort of the same returns that you might in a treasury or a stock, but there's also that opportunity upside. upside. And you know, but when you do think about investing in something that's like a physical, tangible asset like real estate, which is bricks and mortar versus just, you know, ones and zeros on a screen, there's still value. Like whether there's, whether the dollar is around or we're, you know, trading chickens again or whatever, people yeah. still need a roof over their heads. And so there's always going to be some sort of intrinsic value to, to real estate. And so those are some of the reasons why, and I think people should invest in treasuries and people should invest in the stock market, yeah. but real estate should also be part of your portfolio as well. I'm not a financial advisor. It's just what I think. I think, you know, investing in a few different asset classes so you don't have all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, is probably a smart strategy. Yeah, I think I was just about to say, I think there's not one or the other. No, it could be. Like for me, it's one or the other, but it doesn't have to be because I believe in the asset class. So I'm pretty bullish on that. But if somebody were to say that, hey, I want to buy treasuries as well, perfectly, go buy it, right? But do you buy, do you, do you put your entire portfolio in treasuries? That's the question I think we want to start asking, right? With the competition that Matt and I had. That's really use that as a framework and build your own model of, I think there's, and if you search on the internet, there's multiple models. Ray Dalio has model, seasonal model, I think he calls, I can't remember, Evergreen. There's Yale has up and fun model. There's uh, people like George who has a 10 and model. There's so many diversification models, but the, the, the goal, I'm not saying which model is right because one model will resonate better with you. It's no one saying one asset class on the app go right except unless you're Warren Buffett which is you just you just go down in the businesses that you understand and for me it's going to be real estate that that piece I understand so I'm pretty heavy at that but if you're not in that camp it's not a question of this or that I think this, the question is this and that and by how much percentage and with who and that's a very important question do you want to start like that started where I started where I want to own my own property I want to control it just before I got on a call I got a, on this recording I got a call from my tenant for one of the properties that like the water heater broke and literally I had to pause the conversation with Matt saying, Matt, let me take that call because it's important. And yeah, he's not making that up. That really happened. It had <laughs> really, really happened. I'm like, okay, so do I want to be that camp or do I want to be in the camp where I give the money to Matt or, or sock it and say that, hey, you know what? You run with it. You take that call of water heater being broken. I don't want to do that. Right? So you, I think that's a decision you have to make and then which specific asset class works well. So Talking about asset classes within real estate, Matt, what, I know you're still very bullish on multifamily and so am I, but multifamily over the last several months, if not a year, you've seen a lot of noise, negative noise that's come out of the media, right? Help us, help, 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 help us pass that noise for our listeners. Uh, what's true, what's myth, and where do you see the market? Well, I, 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 I don't even know what all the noise is. Like I, I, I tend to ignore it. Good. Um, what I'll say is, yeah, yeah. So people, a lot of people are concerned about the interest rates, right? That's the biggest thing when it comes to noise. And 
You know, I have a YouTube channel and I, I did some predictions at the beginning of the year on what I think is going to happen. And I still hold true to that. I had said at that time that I don't think there's going to be a lot of movement in the interest rates until about halfway through the year. Uh, but I think in the back half of the year, we'll see interest rates come down maybe a full percent, right? Yeah. I, we're, I don't think we're getting back down to 3%, right? We, no. dude, there was mortgages at 3%. I don't know that that's happening. But, you know, when you look at the the different indicators that are out there, it looks like we'll probably come down, you know, one to 2% over the next, you know, one to two years, right? And then we'll be at sort of a, a, an equilibrium, like a, a long-term average for, for, for mortgage. Which is uh, still pretty low. Right. Still pretty low. Yeah, look, I, I it is. And, you know, when I'm looking at multifamily today, you know, a lot of people are are concerned with the market, right? Where's the lo- in terms of like the location, right? Where where is the property? What is that market doing? And I'm not going to say that that's not important at all because it's important. But I think what's more important, at least the way that I'm looking at my deals and approaching it, is how is the deal structured? Yeah. Right. If I can get long term, you know, debt at a fixed interest rate, and I know that going back to Keystone concept number five, that the property is going to cash flow, that's a win for me. And I'll, I'll give you a, a specific example of a deal we did last year. So we did the deal last year and we were able to assume the 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 sellers. So we did a loan assumption and we were able to get, you know, a lot of multifamily deals at the time, you were getting quoted eight, seven to 8% interest rate. We got this for a 3.8% interest rate. Mm. And it was agency debt, so it's fixed for, it was a 10-year no, but it was three years in. So we have seven years, which is plenty of time for us to execute yeah. business plan and exit. Or we could refinance. I mean, we have a lot of value that we're adding to the property. So that deal made a lot of sense because of the way we were able to structure the deal. And so, and it happens to be in good, you know, very good locations. But I think that that's really important is what, kind of debt are you getting? How are you structuring it? What does your capital stack look like? What is the long-term plan? You know, if people are going in to just buy something because, you know, they think they can get a deal right now because maybe there's a distressed asset, a distressed mortgage, you know, and they can get something, you know, at a, at a discount, that's great. But are they just going in there with floating rate debt and planning yeah. two years? Say, oh, the market's going to recover in two years because we don't really know what's going to happen. And yeah. that is a bit riskier than looking at something seven years, it'd be even better if we had something that we could look at 15 years. You know, I have a a project that we're working on right now, which is a new construction project, and we're planning to hold it for 15 years. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that. Again, I think, Matt, all all things goes back to the the wisdom that your dad has. You don't want to be forced to sell it. So you can take a two-year loan, three-year loan. Realistically speaking, if you have seven to 10-year terms of a loan, you'll see a shift in the market in the positive direction. Will we see that shift in the market in the positive direction in the next one year or two years? We may. Nobody knows. But the chances of not happening is also pretty high, right? I think that's really where, where you as an investor you have to start gauging. And you don't have you do not want to listen to your sponsor or general partner on their because their thesis is going to be, while it's very true, and they're not going to lie to you. But everyone reads data very subjectively. Hmm. Everyone has a subjective, not there's a lot of noise and also depends on which data you're listening to, right? Because there's yeah, a bias. My, my father-in-law, I just saw him this weekend and they were talking about something medical. He, he's, he's a doctor. and But he said, he said, I can basically create a study that'll have the results that I want, right? You, yeah, you can, definitely, you can, definitely. 
put things that's gonna kind of make your data points bring yeah through. so data is in the i think i always say and i was a data guy way back when data lies in the, the beauty of the data lies in the beauty. what really do you want data to say do you want me to say the stock market is going to get 15 percent? i'll pick i'll pick a year I'll pick a set of years where the average performance is 50. But is that the right information? So I think what I always say to that is that build your own thesis. Get smarter. Even as a passive investor, you have to know these macro concepts. Understand them so when a deal, when a bat or a socket is presenting you an opportunity, you're not just taking our word for it, right? You think that, okay, interest rate is going to take more than two years. So if they fixed, if, if you have a floating debt, which is going to readjust in two or three years and you're not buying a rate cap, you already know the risk has gone considerably high. Now, you're working in your favor, eh? but there's no, there's no guarantees. At least in seven to 10 years, there's a higher probability of it working in your favor. There's still no guarantee, but the probability changes. So Matt, this is great, man. Dude, we can talk about this forever. Tell me more. Tell me one thing that you're seeing. Are you thinking the market's going to bounce back? If, you, if I give you the crystal ball, yeah, what does your crystal ball say? Bounce back tomorrow? Or bounce back next year? Oh, not tomorrow, next year, you know. Or, or I think what's going to happen is that the, the Fed will lower the interest rates. And I think once we see the first, you know, first lowering, right, the first quarter of a point probably is what they'll do. And, and maybe that'll happen towards the end of the first half of the year. It's definitely, I mean, people were saying March, and I didn't think it was going to be not March. Not going to happen, yeah. Ed's most recent statement said, you know, not going to be March, but maybe May, maybe June, you know, who knows? But I think it'll definitely happen before the end of the year. I think that's going to bring a lot of stability into the marketplace. Right now, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's not as bad as when the rates were going up. Now that they paused increases, there is bringing, it has brought a lot of stability in. But I think as soon as we see the first drop, it's going to bring a lot of things. I think there's going to be a surge in purchases of home, personal homes, I think we're going to see that go up, which you know may or may not be followed by commercial. But I think I think commercial will start to to stabilize a bit, and so I think it'll take time. I don't think it's going to be a quick recovery unless you know we end up in some crazy sort of recession. But you know, the, all the indicators that we're seeing right now is still that the jobs are good. You know, the the, the economy is still healthy. So you know, we'll we'll have to see what happens. Matt, let's know one thing. Yeah, you, you said that the home prices, home purchase is going to go up, right? I think so. So there's a paradox there. So let's talk about that paradox. So the the home prices are seeing slight decline in most places. It hasn't crashed, but slight starts yeah. seeing that decline as you start uh, and and with a higher interest. Rate. Now let's say talk about a year from today, the interest rates have shift, seen some shift in the positive direction, which is lower. The prices go up. But the interest rate also goes. Net, net, nothing is seen, right? You're buying a more expensive home at a cheaper interest rate versus you're buying at a current value of the price at a slightly higher interest rate. Because we're not, so we're not talking about two to three percent drop, a percentage point drop. We're basically saying it's a six and may become five, right? Kind. So when we look at that in it and, and trying to figure out more the way the buyer psychology works, why do why do we say that? Why do you say right now that the, the residential market may see an uptick of the number of purchases? Oh, just because, well, volume of of transactions is like, I, I don't have all the data on it, but it is very low, right? Very low. It's an all-time yeah. low. It's very low, right? And I think that the reason why is because interest rates are very high. And if I am an owner 
of a property and I bought it at a low interest rate, maybe I'm not going to be incentivized to, yeah. you know, now I'm, I'm fortunate enough where I have a property that I live in with a 2.75% interest rate. Don't say, okay. yeah, you're not going to, you're not, not going to exchange it for a 6% or 7%. Right. Let, let's say this property is worth, I don't know, let's say $400,000. I'm just making this up, right? Yeah. If I try to move into another place that costs $400,000, my payment is going to be a lot higher because, yeah, yeah my interest rate is going to be 6%. So I'm not inclined to move unless I have to. Yeah. And, but I think there are people who maybe want to move. But they've been kind of hesitant because going from you know 3% to 6%. Then maybe if they're only going from 3% to 5% and they've been waiting that and they're ready to move, right. I'm ready to move. Yeah. Not me. I'm just saying, like, let's say I'm ready to move. I want to move and I want to move from my $400,000 property to a $700,000 property. And I have the income and everything to do it, but I've been afraid to because of the interest rates and my payments are going to be sell. But at a certain point, it's going to be like, all right, I'm willing to- I'm going to make that jump. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that. And I think we're going to start to see some movement because I think a lot of people have not been moving in the past couple of years because of that. And I think we will start to see that once rates start to come down, what's going to happen, I think, psychologically, because I was talking with my friend about this literally two days ago, and he does not know anything about real estate, really. I mean, mm -hmm. he owns, and he's looking to sell his home and- they, they have it listed at what he thinks is a good price, but they haven't really had any movement yet. And he's like, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I think, and he was saying that his realtor had told him, I told him this and he's like, that's exactly what my realtor was saying. I said, I think as soon as there's a little bit of movement, people are going to want to, they're going to start to, people are going to start to worry Yeah, that the pricing is going to start to go up. Correct. Correct. And so I think there's going to, it's going to kind of feed on that. So I think, I think pricing will go up. I think interest rates will go down. I think ultimately your monthly payment might be about the same as it is now, but psychologically it feels a little bit better yeah. to be paying this interest. I think it's also, if the interest rates are going little, the confidence goes up, right? Off that, because that means the stock market's going better. So people feel wealthy, even if it's paper assets, doesn't mean anything, but I think the overall economic, the more confidence in the U.S. economy, jobs, and everything else, right? I think it's a, it's a, it's again a multivariant problem, and you have to kind of build your own thesis behind it. I love that conversation, Matt, dude. You and I can talk forever. I want to be respectful of your time and also the time here. If we've an over forty conversation, I think there's so much people can hear from. All the sure they love you. So, Matt, towards the end, I want to end with one thing, right? So, as you're raising your kids and you reflect on your own life, what's one value? trying to consciously instead that could I could alter the microchip of their life. Wow, that's a deep question. No one's asked me that question before. You know, there there's a few different values that that we mean meaning me and my wife try to instill mm -hmm. in our children. And I think it's about integrity and it's about being kind. And you know, and I like to think that I'm leaving the world a little bit of a better place than it was, you know, when I got here. That's something that I that I talk about a lot in, you know, on my social media and, and my book and things like that, that it's, it's really important to me to be making improvements, you know, va value add to property, mm -hmm. sure. But we, we try to make improvements to to the, the, the lives of the residents of our communities. We try to make life better for the staff 
that work at our communities. And then we try to enhance the lives of our investors too by making nice profits. But it's really about trying to do to make a profit with a little bit of purpose behind it. It's not a charity and I'm not curing cancer or anything, yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and I try to you know help out those causes and donate to them. But I do think that every one of us in our own impact in the world can make it positive. And so that's something that I try to instill in, you know, I try to do in my everyday life and I try to instill with my, with my family as well. Beautiful. Thank you, Matt. Matt, next question. As you reflect in your conversation with investors, your friends, if you see the world the way you see it, where do you feel humanity as a whole is lacking right now? Where should humanity work? I, I think the biggest problem with humanity at this juncture is technology. And I'm a huge fan of technology, a huge fan of technology. So don't get me wrong, but I do think, you know, everybody looking at screens all the time does not allow for, I think, really truly building rapport and relationships. That's one of the things that has helped me succeed in my life and in real estate in general also is, is building relationships with people. And so getting people off of screens a little bit more and, and interacting with people on a human level, I think is important. Yeah. You know, also I, I have concerns with, you know, and I'm active on social media. So, do, you know, don't get me wrong, but like the algorithms kind of feeding you what you already think. Definitely. Those thoughts and maybe you're not getting introduced to new thoughts is, you know, it's important to understand things from all perspectives. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned with how humanity is interfacing with this technology that we've created and helping that. I, I'm hopeful, again, there's that word, that we'll be able to use technology and the powers that it gives us, which is wonderful, in, in a way that doesn't destroy humanity. You'll love that answer, man, because I think it's that's so true. And I always say that you can, there's only two roles to play on social media. You can consume or you can produce. I would rather have you produce on social media than consume. Because you can't change, you can't change people who want to consume. But if you can produce more, which is less noisy and more, more objective, that's, if we can overpower the social media with that, uh, no matter who you're listening to, you're going to listen to your thoughts, challenging thoughts, and something that's a challenge you and that's really where the growth is. Uh, so Matt, love that conversation, man. Thank you, Matt. In in our almost 15 minutes of conversation, is there one thing that you think you wish I had asked you, but I didn't ask you? Beyond where are they going to find you? We're going to talk about that. What's my favorite Broadway musical? No, don't. I'm there you go, man. Let's do that. I, no, I can't. I mean, I can't. I can't. That's yours. That's yours. <laughs> but no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, it's been a pleasure talking with you, though, and, and I've enjoyed the conversation quite a bit. Well, thank you, man. Thank you, Matt. So where can people find you? Where can they find your work? Uh, yeah. What you're working on? Where can they learn more about it? Go to Picheni.com. I'll spell it real quick. P-I-C-H-E-N-Y.com. I'm sure you'll put a link in the show notes to mm -hmm. it. Uh, that's where everything is. I got a ton of free content there. Free videos, free downloads uh, about investing passively or actively. Uh, I coach people on how to how to do active stuff. So there's, there's tons of resources there. So I recommend go to Picheni. You can check out my book. You can reach out to me. I love chatting with people about real estate. I love that. I think he's not lying. Do that. You should take advantage of picking his brain. And maybe he'll tell you what his favorite was. Well, <laughs> reach well, out Matt, to me and I'll tell you on a one-on-one -on -one conversation. On a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Well, thank you again, Matt. Really, really a pleasure to talk to you again, man. And I'm sure our paths are here. Thank you. And listeners, if you're listening to this part, thank you for giving us most of your time. We don't take it lightly. The show is only possible because of you. 
So thank you again for doing that. Hopefully you draw some value out of that, of how to look at the future of the investments. When I say future, next 12 to 14, four months. That, because that's really how far, somebody's telling you they can project five years down the road. Chances are it's a projection and it's coming with a lot of assumptions. And you can't, I think you can only foresee, you can only see less, less than six months out. So, so hopefully this conversation's sparked some interest in you. If you're not an investor, you're going to start looking at it. And if you're an investor, you're going to become a better one. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below.